Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show, first time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to go over and get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That is our exclusive section for our members and subscribers. That is how you can support Counterpunch. We've been around for 30 years. We're going to be around for many more years in the future and bringing you all kinds of insights and analysis from the left from a variety of perspectives, um, many of which won't find platforms elsewhere. So, uh, Go over to Counterpunch, get that subscription. I've been plugging the Counterpunch Plus Journal. That is the best of 2021. Go over to get a $12 copy of that. It's well worth your time. Now, I'm going to move over and get my guest onto the call here. Boris Kogarlitsky is with me. He is one of our favorites at Counterpunch. He is a historian, sociologist, activist, author. He is the chief editor of the online journal, robcore.ru. And he is the director of the Institute for Globalization and Social Movements. And most importantly, if you want to follow his most recent writing, which I absolutely could not recommend more highly, go over and subscribe to Russian Descent. That is on Substack. Russian Descent is one of the most important subscriptions you're going to make anytime in the uh, in these months and, well, in 2022. So I highly, highly recommend it. Boris Kogarlitsky, welcome back to Counterpunch. Uh, hello. Hello, Eric. Thank you so much for giving me some time today. Uh, we're recording here on September 9th. So, Boris, I'm just going to ask you, give us the rundown of what's the situation like in Russia. You're in, in Moscow. What is going on there? People, what is the mood? Are people talking about the war? Are people ignoring it? Is it some happening in some far off land? Tell us how the discourse is going. Hi, Eric. Uh, first of all, yes, it's very important that I think now people already started noticing the war because the major problem during the first months of the war was that it continued uh, taking place kind of unnoticed for the great majority of people in Russia, as if something was happening very, very far away uh, in some distant galaxy, uh, quoting the famous movie. Uh, and... Uh, yes, things started happening uh, recently when a uh, huge majority of Russians started noticing that something is going wrong. Something is going really, really wrong. Uh, it is partly because of more and more people getting killed, but also uh, the very fact that the war continues for much longer than it was expected also changed the perception of what uh, was happening because uh, it was officially announced as some kind of special military operation, uh, something which is a little bit like a kind of commando action, you know, a bit like what uh, United States did in Panama, for example, or something like that, or Grenada. Uh, well, of course, American society noticed uh, these events, but anyhow, these were just uh, one-time operations, and... Uh, uh, these were not uh, protracted wars uh, uh, affecting uh, lives of millions of people and so on. Uh, and the initial perception which uh, the official media wanted to establish and, uh, and promote was exactly like, well, there is something happening in Ukraine. It doesn't really matter for, for many of us and uh, some special troops are in action, but that's it. And uh, then uh, the first change was when uh, after six months of uh, military activities, uh, 
quite a lot of people who trusted the official media started asking questions. Why is it going on for so long? And what is it happening? What is it? What what is what is it happening there in Ukraine really? And uh, also, the official media failed to uh, to give us uh, any explanations. Uh, there is one point which is very important. It's not because of the lack of information uh, on the official side. Actually, there are, uh, there are loads, uh, tons of materials on the official media uh, with uh, some kind of war propaganda. Uh, the point is that uh, most people in Russia did not bother uh, and even now don't bother uh, watching uh, uh, these uh, uh, television programs or, or reading these newspapers. Uh, or even uh, they're not uh, interested in uh, going for it, uh, going for it uh, online in the internet uh, because uh, the great majority of Russian society, the tremendous majority, maybe 85% of the population are totally apolitical. They're totally uninterested in anything political. And uh, the point is exactly what happened to these people. And uh, it seems that, well, about a uh, month or two ago, uh, these people started asking questions and these people started uh, getting uh, interested and involved with what's going on. Uh, that's one aspect of the situation. And then uh, all of a sudden, even the official uh, sociological uh, survey uh, institution called Tsirom, which is very, very close to the Kremlin and which is very much part of the propaganda um, infrastructure of Russian elite, uh, suddenly published a report that the support for the war is, was declining. It was published already about a week ago and uh, it was uh, not just one or two percent, it was uh, uh, massively declining. Uh, so it means that the official uh, media has to recognize the fact that the things are getting out of control and the uh, public perception of the war uh, is changing and people, uh, even those people who are not necessarily in opposition to the war, are feeling tired of it. And uh, they're starting asking questions about whether it's going to happen and how is it going to, uh, whether it's good, sorry, uh, people are starting asking questions whether it's going to stop and how is it going to stop and so on. And so uh, in that sense, the public mood is, is very, very different. And now compared to three or four months ago. And the second aspect of the situation is uh, the development of uh, military uh, um, situation on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, became a very important factor. Uh, first of all, uh, because uh, it, the very fact that Ukrainian army have, uh, was able to uh, start a counteroffensive contradicted everything which was uh, said on official television, on uh, which was said on, on the official pro-Kremlin media and so on. And uh, uh, then, uh, to make things worse, uh, the counteroffensive happened to become very successful. Uh, right now, we are following the events uh, near and around Balaklea uh, town in 
northeastern Ukraine, where uh, Russian troops uh, happened to be uh, defeated massively and uh, now seem to be on the run. And uh, that is also a very humiliating uh, fact, which uh, also uh, damaged uh, their uh, propaganda and damaged the ideology of, uh, of the so-called uh, state patriots. So in that sense, uh, the situation is changing. Uh, it seems, that, again, we cannot prove it because uh, this is the information which I get from the telegram channels, which are very often anonymous, so I cannot prove it. But it seems that there is a tremendous anger among the military uh, because at this point, the military are already quite aware that they were forced uh, to fight a war without any chance of winning it. So they're very angry at the uh, political leadership who made them suffer uh, these defeats and humiliations. And, um, well, uh, just yesterday, uh, there was um, supposedly, according to the uh, Telegram channels, there was a conversation between uh, Putin and one of his generals uh, who just said a phrase which maybe will become historical. He said, uh, Dear Vladimir Vladimirovich, you failed it. Uh, and uh, this is uh, something which now people repeat. They failed it, you see. Uh, so, uh, it seems that uh, something is going to change. How fast, we don't know, but it's going to change. Uh, the big question is, uh, what kind of change are we going to expect? Because it is already very clear that the war is um, not going to be won. It's actually, it's going to be lost. Uh, but uh, what will be the consequences? That is the big questions, a question. And uh, that is something we have to, to discuss. And uh, I, I have some, I can make some, some predictions possibly, but uh, the important thing that we are right now uh, facing a turning point here in, in Moscow and in Russia. It's very interesting to think of it as a turning point. I want to return to the poll that you just mentioned coming from basically the official polling from the Kremlin, why would they release something that clearly demonstrates that their uh, public relations and marketing has failed? Well, I think uh, there are two problems here. One problem is that uh, there are certain things they cannot hide. So if they release that, it shows that the situation is really desperate. So there is no way you can keep hiding it. Uh, and uh, the change in the public opinion is very dramatic and visible. But this is only one side of the story or one possible explanation. Another explanation is a little bit more conspirological, uh, but still uh, has to be taken seriously. Uh, it is very clear that at least some of the people in the Kremlin are 100% certain now that uh, some kind of a compromise has to be made with the West and with the current Ukrainian government. Uh, the problem here is not that much even uh, the position of the West or the position of uh, Ukrainians. The major problem, ironically, is uh, Russian propaganda itself. 
because uh, first of all, for a period of like um, five months or more, uh, they depicted uh, this war as uh, some kind of existential struggle between uh, Russian uh, world, as they call it, Russian society or Russian um, Russian people and the rest of the world, which uh, has only one um, aim, only one goal, uh, which is to exterminate Russians and to eliminate Russian civilization and so on and so on. Uh, so, so it was presented as an existential struggle where we have to fight and uh, die or kill everybody, but there is no other options. Uh, there are no other options. And, uh, and now uh, they're actually looking for a compromise. Uh, so uh, how can you make a compromise? How make a peace deal with an existential enemy? Uh, it's, this is one story, uh, side of the story. Also, how can you and why should you make a deal and a compromise with somebody who is, according to your own explanation, is completely defeated and destroyed and we just have to wait for another couple of weeks or months until uh, Ukraine collapses and the West collapses and so on and so on. Uh, so uh, in both ways... Uh, uh, propaganda uh, was working uh, on rising expectations and uh, feelings which were totally inadequate, and uh, they created some kind of mood within some part of the society. It's not the majority of society, but it's an, an essential part of, uh, of the society, which uh, was actually expecting some tremendous uh, successes, tremendous triumph. And uh, now, uh, uh, at least some people in the Kremlin, now they're uh, looking for an opportunity to uh, bring down these expectations, uh, to bring uh, the society and their um, groups supporting the uh, regime closer to reality. And it seems that this is now one major effort which is um, becoming visible more and more visible by the day. Uh, just recently, there were some very interesting events because uh, first in the, tele in the uh, anonymous Telegram channels, uh, there was a report uh, that Putin was very angry at uh, Vladimir Solovyov, who is uh, uh, the major person for the propaganda mafia, for the... For the uh, for, for, for this industry. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, the, the point was that Putin supposedly made a statement that these people kind of went too far and they're becoming a problem. And uh, then, a uh, few days after that anonymous publication, uh, Salavio was badly beaten by somebody. And... Uh, uh, he even had to appear on television, uh, online, uh, with his face uh, just showing the traces of him being beaten. And uh, when he was asked uh, by uh, somebody who, uh, some, some colleagues, uh, what happened, uh, he refused to answer. So there are... Uh, there, uh, the answer which appeared on uh, online in, in the Telegram channels was that he was beaten by the 
people from the security police, uh, FSO, which is one of the security services in, in Russia, uh, who are, well, actually were trying to make him shut up. Uh, so don't uh, uh, kind of, don't uh, promote this jingoist propaganda anymore. We don't need it anymore. You have to shut up and stop it because now the policy is going to change and we are going to move in a totally different direction. And, uh, um, well, that shows that there is a growing conflict within the establishment because speaking about propaganda, people and patriot, so-called patriotic uh, segments of, of the society and uh, patriotic segments of the elite, you should not forget that uh, they are not dominant in the society. No, nobody is dominant with, uh, with the society because the society is apolitical, as I mentioned before. But uh, they are very influential and uh, they, are they are trying to influence the decision-making, the control of the decision-making, including to control Putin himself. And it seems that uh, at this point, uh, the reasonable, the most reasonable part of the Kremlin team is getting angry at them and is getting scared that these people are pulling us into the direction where we all are going to face a lot of problems, including those people in the Kremlin. Uh, so there is a tremendous struggle and there is a real attempt to kind of reorient the uh, the uh, the Titanic, to reorient the the course of Titanic, uh, but it, it is already ti a Titanic. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Well, speaking of uh, Titanics and things that might be sinking, tell us a little bit about the economic situation in Russia. We hear quite often in the West, whether it's in mainstream publications like the Wall Street Journal or whether it's in you know left-wing publications or what have you, that while the Europeans have shot themselves in the foot and the Americans have uh, you know done what they've done, the Russians have weathered the storm, they've managed to uh, strengthen the ruble, prop up the economy, and more or less the sanctions haven't hurt them. I've, of course, argued against that and basically made the point that most of the damage is being concealed from Western eyes, but that it is happening. So I want to get an insight from you. What is the economic situation like? I understand store shelves aren't empty, but what is the real economic situation like? How are people really being affected, especially working class Russians? Well, the store shelves are not empty. It's absolutely true. But the question is why? And the question, uh, uh, well, and the answer uh, to this question is uh, very simple. People can't buy anymore. Uh, well, the income, uh, the revenues of uh, working class people uh, is uh, down. Lots of people are either losing their jobs or losing their incomes. And uh, they can't buy uh, certain products, uh, certain uh, even certain food. And uh, then, well, of course, there, is, there are no shortages. Why should there be shortages when people are not able to buy? Uh, that's market economy. Uh, that's capitalism, stupid, you know. Uh, so uh, in that sense, uh, you should not compare that with the former Soviet Union when there were economic problems. They ended up in uh, uh, 
uh, shop shelves uh, being becoming empty, but uh, within capitalism it is, it is totally different. It's uh, not about the shelves of the stores, it's about the pockets of the people, and the pockets are empty. That's what's happening. And also high ruble, uh, the, the high exchange rate of the ruble is a tremendous disaster for uh, both for the government and for the population, because uh, first of all, middle class and especially low middle class people kept their savings in the dollars for the last 20 years. So when the dollar collapsed, it means that uh, millions of Russians lost their savings. That's the real meaning of the, of the uh, in increasing exchange rate of the ruble. And ironically, uh, the situation of the Minister of Finance is exactly the same. Uh, because the Minister of Finance uh, is uh, complaining about the ruble being too high. Why? Uh, because uh, usually the system worked in such, such a way that uh, Russia got uh, dollars and euros for its uh, exports, which are mostly oil and gas, as you know. And then uh, it was uh, transferred into, exchanged into ruble, Russian rubles, which were uh, in a certain sense, uh, underappreciated. Uh, and uh, uh, then you understand the, uh, the lower is the exchange rate of the ruble, the more uh, money the government got in, in its budget. Uh, so uh, the rubles were used to pay salaries uh, for the people working for the government, uh, pensions, uh, uh, subsidies, uh, Welfare, uh, um, welfare expenditure, and so on, and so on. Infrastructure. Uh, so now, with the very high exchange rate of the ruble, uh, the government doesn't get enough rubles to pay uh, its uh, uh, expenditure, its expenses. So, uh, and then the question is, why uh, is uh, Russian ruble so high if nobody wants it? And the answer is very simple, because of the collapse of the uh, exports, uh, of the imports, so, excuse me, uh, the collapse of the imports. So uh, what's happening? That you see that uh, Russian oil and Russian gas continue to be sold abroad. That's, that's absolutely true. And even the prices uh, increased. So the quantity of dollars uh, coming into Russia uh, to some extent, uh, remain stable or even even increased. But at the very same moment, uh, their uh, imports uh, collapsed. And with uh, imports collapsing, uh, nobody is uh, interested in buying dollars because what are you going to do with these dollars? Uh, there is no way you can spend them. There is no way you can buy anything abroad with, uh, with these uh, dollars or euros. And that led uh, to the situation when, uh, of course, uh, the market worked against, uh, against the dollar in favor of the ruble. The ruble, in, uh, with, uh, with the lack of demand uh, for the dollars and euros, uh, the, the exchange rate uh, decreased. Um, Central Bank and the Minister of Finance made a few attempts uh, to increase the exchange rate of the dollar uh, but it didn't work out because then you have to spend a lot of money just to, you know, to work, to act against your own currency, which is a very absurd. 
uh, and uh, to destabilize your own currency. And also, uh, there is another uh, danger that once they really uh, go the other way around, once they manage to uh, depreciate uh, uh, depreciate the ruble, uh, there is uh, no clear uh, red line where where it's going to stop. Maybe so uh, you can work on the ruble, trying to depreciate it somewhat, and then it, it will collapse. So that's not something a uh, central bank would, would like to happen. Uh, also, don't forget that uh, you can hardly buy uh, any, uh, any dollar cash uh, in uh, Moscow. Uh, it's very hard. You can, you can, but it's very hard. So um, cash is difficult to get at this point. And uh, this is another symptom that uh, the, the economy is uh, facing problems uh, getting access to, to actual cash. And, uh, well, in general, uh, yes, I should say that, uh, I should say that uh, there, uh, uh, the feeling of uh, ordinary people about uh, their life is, uh, is uh, very different compared to what it used to be, uh, say, uh, a year ago, uh, in the sense that uh, the life of ordinary Russians was very uh, difficult, very hard a year ago. People were very poor and they were getting poorer and poorer by the day already a year ago uh, or maybe two years ago. So the situation deteriorated for, for quite a few years, and it's just gradually deteriorating the same way, at the same pace as it used to. So in that sense, uh, you cannot even say whether it's sanctions or war or anything, because it was bad, it's getting worse, it's going to get worse, and that's how it is normal for here. Um, so uh, the panic you can uh, see uh, among economic managers. Uh, these people are really panicking. These people are really panicking because they don't know what to do with their businesses. They don't know how to sell. They don't know how to get the spare parts. They don't know how to deal with logistics. Uh, and once you speak to their people uh, who are in business, who are in the uh, in their uh, well uh, management of big companies, uh, these people are really really desperate. One of the most important things I find in reading your analysis, Boris, and in just talking to you over the years and knowing is that you have insights that I, I think you're able to articulate for Western left audience so that they can understand things in, 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 in better context. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you to address um, what be, what is probably the most popular talking point among those on the left who, for various reasons, bolster some of uh, the Kremlin's talking points, and that being that the war isn't really about Ukraine. It isn't really about uh, domestic issues or anything like that. This is really ultimately about the United States and NATO's eastward expansion towards the footsteps of to the foot to the doorstep of Russia and the promises made at the end of the Soviet period that NATO wouldn't expand. And so really, Putin is only simply reacting to NATO's expansion. Can you give us your take on that uh, quote-unquote analysis that some leftists like to use? And then from there, give us your 
insights into what really motivated Russia and Putin to make what is clearly this historic strategic blunder? Uh, it is true that uh, Western uh, policies towards Eastern Europe and Russia were uh, imperialist. There is no doubt about it. And uh, NATO expansion was real. And NATO was really getting to the doorsteps of uh, Russia, even without any real reason uh, for that to happen, if you are taking the period of uh, early 2000s, up to probably 2010-2012, because ironically it was uh, exactly the Putin's war against Ukraine which pushed factum, gave justification to the nation expansion uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, if we are, if we were taking the previous period, uh, the uh, NATO expansion. Um, could not be justified uh, by the conflict with Russia because there was no such conflict. Ironically, however, NATO had its own motives uh, to expand into Eastern Europe which uh, and former Soviet Union, which had very little to do with Russia either. Uh, the reason was that NATO needed human and military, military resources of these uh, countries. So... Uh, you get more and more countries involved in the NATO operations, then you can send these people, say, to Iraq or somewhere else. Uh, the Ukrainians sent to Iraq. Uh, actually, uh, Russia was also involved very, very heavily in these operations, as you know, because up to very, very recently, there was a NATO air base in Russia uh, which was used to uh, fly uh, supplies and sometimes troops to Afghanistan. So Russia was very, very much part of the NATO uh, eastward expansion. And um, this is a very interesting, a, a very ironic point, because now a lot of people are saying that, well, if, we, if not for the, uh, for the military action, there would have been NATO... Uh, bases uh, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, but the irony is that so far there were never any NATO bases in Ukraine, but there was a NATO base in Russia itself, uh, which is something which is very often forgotten. But again, uh, eastwards uh, expansion of NATO was part of uh, Western imperialist uh, policies, uh, uh, but into the interesting point is that up to probably 2014, it had very little to do with Russia. It, has, it was much more uh, about uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, uh, and well, the, maybe China to some extent, and so on. Uh, and uh, this is one side of, of the coin. And the other side of the coin, which is uh, Russian sub-imperialism, let's put it this way, um, because uh, Russian elites accumulated enormous quantities of, uh, of money, of, of uh, hard currency throughout the Putin era. And this is a very typical crisis of oral accumulation, as it was uh, described by Rosa Luxemburg uh, in her famous book. And uh, that means that 
uh, Russian uh, elite accumulated uh, much more uh, money, much more capital that it could use and use and invest inside its own country. Uh, the kind of structure we have of Russian economy, which is uh, totally dependent on global markets and dependent on the export of raw materials to uh, the West and to China, uh, is not encouraging Russian business to uh, invest into manufacturing or welfare or education or science and so on. All these sectors, uh, including infrastructure, were terribly disinvested throughout these periods. At the same time, the quantity of money accumulated both by the state and by the uh, private sector uh, is enormous. And uh, that led to, um, to a specific type of expansionism uh, because uh, Russian corporations were interested in taking over uh, companies and resources, especially resources, in the former countries of Soviet Union. Uh, Ukraine was of special interest, but also Moldova, also Kazakhstan, and so on and so on. And here there was a very classical capitalist imperialist conflict between different uh, competitors. Uh, because also Western capital, Western corporations were uh, moving into various, into the same markets, and there was a very standard classical competition, uh, not so much about who is going to sell what, but it was very much about who, is, who was going to control the, uh, the available resources in these countries, which were even poorer uh, than Russia, by far more, more poor. So the expansion of Russian capital in, inside Ukraine was uh, a major source of conflict between uh, uh, especially Russia and the European Union. In that sense, interestingly enough, uh, Americans didn't play a major role up to very recently. Of course, they played a political role, uh, but the real capitals which were involved were not so much from the United States. Uh, these were mainly German, Dutch, interestingly enough, Dutch capitals, uh, and uh, so there was definitely a classical case of capitalist competition between uh, Russian capitalists and uh, European Union capitalists uh, over Ukrainian market, which is a standard capitalist case for a war. And the last time that we spoke, Boris, unfortunately, we had technical issues, but we, you had gone into an explanation that I thought was really important for people to understand that, of course, yes, Everybody understands it's like a priori knowledge that the United States is an imperialist uh, power. NATO is its military uh, power projection arm and imperialists do what imperialists do. But you mentioned in our prior conversation, one, the disaster of the election results in uh, what was that a year and a half ago now, the disastrous election, the fact that the United Russia Party was unable, even with the vote rigging and everything, was unable to really come out looking like anything but embarrassed or humiliated, the protests on the streets. Talk a little bit about some of these domestic issues that you have argued previously were some of the key drivers of this invasion, rather than these external forces like the US, NATO, these inter-imperialist rivalries and so forth. Uh, definitely. I already uh, have spoken about that a lot, so I have to return back to that point which I mentioned in the previous conversation with you and some other articles. Uh, this is a point which is 
were often not really appreciated by the Western media, uh, both leftist and the mainstream media, uh, because uh, actually uh, it seems that Western public doesn't really care about what's happening with the Russian society as such. Uh, so in that sense, uh, very often, uh, if you read Western media, it seems that Russia is a kind of monolithic country which is controlled by an autocratic government. The government is um, presented in, in, in a very negative way, but uh, nobody discusses uh, what's happening with and in the society. And uh, yes, this is exactly what I mentioned before, that uh, September elections of 2021 which were uh, held in the conditions of not only vote vote, uh, rigging, but also uh, tremendous pressure on the opposition with uh, quite a few uh, opposition candidates not even being able to participate and so on, Uh, in the situation with the total control of the media and uh, repression and so on, still uh, led to... uh, to the collapse of uh, United Russia vote uh, in uh, mostly most important uh, centers like Moscow, uh, St. Petersburg, Ekaterinburg, uh, uh, in Siberia, and, and so on and so on. Uh, they lost the election. They failed it miserably, even though they did everything uh, to prevent opposition from actually campaigning or, or, or really being able to compete for votes properly. And, of course, uh, that led to the situation when uh, vote rigging uh, went up to the levels which were un, uh, unexperienced even in Russia. Because, yes, vote rigging is normal. Electoral fraud is kind of normal, but they went up to the levels which were unprecedented even for, for Russian uh, standards. Uh, like in Moscow, uh, the uh, candidates of United Russia lost uh, most of the constituencies by far. And then the, the, the day after the election, after the votes were, uh, were, uh, were already uh, counted, uh, they uh, recounted votes saying that there was so called so-called electronic voting, electronic voting, online voting, uh, and also they said that uh, online voting uh, allowed people to re-vote, to um, kind of uh, reconsider their vote. So they said that, uh, well, (laughs) most people who voted online reconsidered their voters, and instead of voting for their position, they uh, post factum voted for the for the government party, which was a tremendous scandal, provoking also uh, opposition rallies, and uh, there was a new wave of repression after that, and so on. Uh, but uh, the election was only a symptom. It was not that much of a problem. It was only a symptom because uh, it has shown that uh, the level of uh, popularity, not only for the uh, United Russia Party, but also for Putin and for for the system for the regime uh, was extremely extremely low and was uh, going under, really going under. Uh, Putin's popularity, uh, to, according to some uh, 
polls went up to down went down to the level of say 12 20 percent which was unprecedented and uh, uh, at that point they really needed to do something to reconsider uh, re uh, uh, kind of reunite the society uh, to get some kind of realignment around uh, the the president, the government, the regime, and so on, and at the same time, uh, kind of restructure the system, uh, turning it into a, a more controlled, more even more authoritarian, or even quite kind of totalitarian, to um, reconsolidate the, the system around Putin and so on. If you uh, read what uh, pro-government uh, pundits uh, and uh, even uh, some officials uh, were uh, writing and saying about, say, Ukraine or about Russian people and so on. It was very much like the traditional Nazi stuff, like what, like now they use these terms, uh, one nation, one leader, for example. This is already part of the official language. One nation, one leader. One country, one nation, one leader, and one victory, as they say. That's the official slogan. So it's very much what the Third Reich was using using the in the Second World War. Uh, so, uh, by the way, it doesn't mean that Russia is getting fascist. It's not true. Uh, it's the fact is that uh, Russian uh, some segments of Russian um, current uh, leadership uh, wanted. I stress, wanted Russia to become a fascist country, and they failed to achieve it. They failed. Um, it's another failure. It's like failing the war. They're also failing fascists. They're failing everything, including the attempts uh, to make Russia, Russia a fascist country. It's, it's another failure. But anyhow, that was part of the, of the project. So they have to start a war, and this war uh, is going to be a tremendous and very uh, fast success. Ukraine is going to collapse within hours or days, and then uh, we will have this incredible triumph that we will uh, kind of uh, reconsolidate the country, and uh, uh, Putin will be a uh, national hero again, uh, and, uh, well, it will be very much like in 2014 when after the annexation of Crimea, um, the country was more or less uh, reconsolidated around uh, the uh, slogan of Crimean consensus. And it was true, by the way, that uh, people did see the annexation of Crimea as a positive thing, uh, partly because Crimean population welcomed uh, the annexation, don't forget that. And uh, they wanted to replay uh, the Crimean consensus to, to remake it. Uh, they failed. They failed, and now they're facing the consequences. So in the time that we have remaining, I want to talk about some related issues to that. One of the things about the Russian army that uh, I've talked about in several videos that is very interesting, especially for those of us in the United States, is the way in which the military is 
to a large extent comprised of uh, soldiers on the front lines who come from the poorest parts of the country, who are often uh, economically living on the margins in extreme poverty, for whom the military is sort of a way out. It's a career. It's a way to support their families. And so we find that many of these uh, regions provide so much of the cannon fodder that is dying in Ukraine. So my question for you then is uh, those those regions, especially, you know, places like Dagestan and Chechnya and elsewhere that have provided so many of these soldiers, do we see any evidence of unrest, uh, you know, say, mothers of dead soldiers who are speaking to each other. This is a phenomenon we've seen in many countries, in many wars, in many contexts. So I want to get a sense of, from your perspective, what's happening outside of St. Petersburg and Moscow in some of these uh, other parts of the country? Uh, first of all, uh, there are different regions. Uh, Russia is not only a huge country, it's also a country which... Uh, is composed of very different regions with very different societies. And, uh, for example, if we are speaking about Northern Caucasus, uh, yes, uh, uh, quite a few uh, people who serve in the army and serve in Ukraine are coming from these regions. Uh, but in a certain sense, uh, for uh, those regions, it's also a chance to make some kind of uh, career and escape from poverty. And so far, we don't see any signs of unrest in the Northern Caucasus. Um, at the same time, uh, there are also plenty of people who are coming from depressed uh, Russian regions, regions with uh, ethnic Russian population, but especially these are rural areas. And these villages are remote from each other. So sometimes it's hundreds or thousands of kilometers between these uh, villages. So there is very little communication. So even when you learn that uh, five or ten people died uh, in that or this village, it doesn't make any difference because uh, there is total discommunication between these places. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the major source of opposition used to be and is um, in the big cities. Uh, but don't forget, Russia is a country of uh, quite a few big cities. And uh, uh, here uh, people are getting uh, increasingly angry. And also in some regions which are close to Ukrainian border, uh, you find uh, the mood which is uh, changing. Uh, first of all, yes, the, when you have when you when I was in Kursk, for example, uh, just recently, uh, there was always news about people who got killed there, and not necessarily from the city itself, but also from the province, and people were angry and. Uh, in places like Kursk or Belgorod, uh, close to Ukrainian frontier, there are quite a few people who have relatives on the other side of the border who are also communicating with them, who are reporting uh, the devastation which is taking place in Ukraine, the damage caused uh, by the Russian army. Uh, and uh, uh, that is uh, influencing the public opinion. So these provinces are getting increasingly... Uh, Un, uh, unloyal uh, to the central government 
And uh, the other very interesting example is Buryatia. It's also a very poor ethnic area, uh, and Buryats were uh, also very important in terms of providing cannon fodder for the army. And now there is a strong movement in Buryatia. It's probably the first uh, major ethnic region of Russia with a strong anti-war movement. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, they are going to have uh, elections uh, there in uh, two days from now, uh, the election of the governor of the province. Uh, there are Communist Party uh, candidate, um, Vyacheslav Markhaev, who himself um, used to be a military um, officer, uh, was not allowed to run uh, for uh, the job of the governor uh, because also he uh, spoke out uh, publicly against the war. And uh, the Communist Party was uh, forced uh, to run a different candidate. Uh, but uh, though uh, the, the central leadership of the Communist Party is totally in the pocket of Zuganov, uh, sorry, and, and and totally, totally in the pocket of the Kremlin. Uh, the local, the local uh, party leaders in some places are uh, very critical, both of the of their own party leadership and of, of what the Kremlin is doing and of the war. And uh, Buretti is one of the cases, and uh, we will see how will the election uh, go because uh, of course there will be uh, massive electoral fraud and uh, they will declare a united russia victory anyhow no matter what happens uh, but it seems that in Buretta quite a few people will try to use the opportunity to vote against united russia to show their opposition to the war of course their votes uh, will not be properly counted and we'll see how it will affect the society there Okay, Boris, in the couple of minutes we have remaining, I want to ask one final question and then give you an opportunity to speak on what you think is coming, whether you want to call it a prediction or an educated guess or what have you. But um, I, want to, I want to just ask you very quickly about um, the, ways, the ways in which this can move forward. And what I mean by that is the United States and NATO, the imperial system and the strategic planners that make decisions for the empire, they're not just going to allow Putin to come to some negotiating negotiating table and compromise and walk away from this. They want to bleed Russia. They want to force Russia into a quagmire that, you know, disastrous effects of which would last for decades. So my question then is as you mentioned earlier, that the Kremlin seems to be making moves towards potentially uh, shifting towards compromise. How is that even possible, given the forces that are arrayed, not only the United States and its desire to bleed Russia, but also the fact that the uh, opinion polls in Ukraine show vast majorities of the country have zero interest in negotiating with the invading army? So how do we move forward, even if the Kremlin wants to compromise? Well, the Kremlin is not just Putin. It's uh, much more than one person, as you can imagine. And, uh, well, it seems that there is a kind of consensus in the uh, elite at this point that the war is lost and there is no way you can even try to win it. Uh, you have to try to 
achieve some kind of compromise. That's that's the kind of consensus. There is one problem there. The problem is called Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Uh, so uh, how are they going to solve this problem? I don't really know. And uh, you see, it's not that Putin doesn't want to negotiate. It's not the problem that Putin is against negotiation. The problem is that nobody will negotiate with Putin because he's too toxic. And uh, there perspective for the Russian elite at this stage is uh, Putinism without Putin. So getting rid of Putin somehow, and so far I think they don't know how to do it, how to get it, but getting rid of Putin somehow, and then, uh, well, you can declare tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, that, well, there is a regime change. Uh, well, Putin is gone. Without Putin, uh, Russia is uh, turning to a totally opposite direction. And uh, it, not only it wants to negotiate, it wants to cooperate. And uh, the day after tomorrow, possibly, all these people who were writing uh, um, some patriotic articles about the existential animosity between Russians and Ukrainians would be uh, writing articles and making statements praising Ukraine and praising the West and, uh, and so on and so on, as long as we can get to the status quo ante, uh, maybe the status quo ante of, uh, say, 2014, for example, and so on. Russian troops withdrawing from Ukraine, definitely a few uh, people who are associated with the uh, with the propaganda effort of uh, of this war would be punished. Uh, maybe a few uh, politicians would be uh, called uh, used as scapegoats. Uh, so the idea is that well, you have to find the scapegoats and uh, find the way to negotiate with the West and try to keep everything uh, as it used to be. Uh, the red line at this point is that. Uh, Crimea should stay under Russian control. And by the way, here I think uh, it is quite reasonable because uh, neither, neither Russian officials nor Ukrainian officials nor Western officials even consider uh, what uh, do Crimean people think about this, you see? If you are... Uh, if you are following the discourse on the Russian side or on their... Uh, Ukrainian or Western side, it's all about territory. Crimea should belong to Russia because it used to be part of Russia for some years, okay. Or it should belong to Ukraine because it used to be Ukrainian before 2014. Or it used to be Ukrainian, according to Western standards, because legally uh, this territory is Ukrainian. Uh, the problem is that you people in, in the Crimean Peninsula uh, don't want to be Ukrainians. Uh, I'm not sure they want to be Russians, by the way, but they, they definitely don't want to be part of Ukraine. This is a very important point. So I think some kind of referendum is uh, quite uh, quite a logical issue, a logical uh, uh, solution, but the question is whether, uh, whether it's going to happen. But uh, I think that the really important issue for the Russian elite is not the Crimea. Uh, Crimea is important, but not that important. The really important issue is to uh, regain the opportunity to sell uh, Russian resources abroad 
and to regain the opportunity to invest Russian money abroad. Uh, as I called, told you, the, the, the crisis of uh, overaccumulation is very serious. It's one of the causes of the war. Uh, so without, uh, uh, without the capacity of uh, uh, exporting capital, uh, Russian uh, ruling class uh, is not properly capable of functioning. Uh, because if you want uh, Russian money to be invested in, uh, inside Russia, you need a different uh, kind of economy and a different kind of ruling class and, and a different kind of system and, and so on. Uh, so, so they are totally determined to, uh, to kind of negotiate their way back into the world system. And, uh, well, the question is, how are they going to solve the problem of Putin? Uh, it is getting increasingly interesting that the military uh, establishment is uh, now very angry, and they are angry at Putin, they are angry at Shoigu and Gerasimov, the two top persons who are associated with the uh, decision to start the war. Uh, Shoigu, the Minister of uh, Defense, and uh, Gerasimov, the head of, uh, the, the head of staff. Uh, both people are extremely unpopular with the military, uh, so we're going to see what's going to happen, especially if the military defeat is uh, uh, not only becoming uh, inevitable, but becoming uh, already a fact of, of daily life. And uh, that, that's basically what the elites have in mind. The question is whether it's going to work their way. And again, speaking about what Western governments want to do with Russia, uh, don't forget about Russia itself. Don't all, all these calculations, all these uh, theories and strategies, they just do not consider the existence of Russian population, Russian people, Russian society. And uh, here are the, the here is the major problem because I'm pretty sure that once uh, Putin's regime is. Uh, uh, gun or at least when it's beginning to change itself that will uh, release uh, tremendous uh, social energy which will uh, work towards uh, political and social change um, and uh, not just it's not just for Russia alone because the new liberal capitalist system is in crisis globally this war is just one of the symptoms of the global crisis of the new liberal capitalist model uh, the same way as the First World War was the, the symptom of the crisis of the classical liberal capitalist model of the late 19th century or early 20th century. And in that sense, Russia, again, in many ways, is uh, following their, the same path as uh, uh, it was following in the 1916-1917. I'm not going to say it's going to be the same story. It's going to be very, a very different story. But... Uh, well, this is a tremendous feeling of déjà vu. Uh, we are very much in the same in the same uh, uh, type of crisis. It's not the same crisis, but the same type of crisis when the uh, the old elite is unable uh, to uh, get out uh, of the of the trap in which it jumped already. And uh, well, they they're doomed. They're doomed, and uh, and Russia is not. 
That's very well said. Boris Kogorlitsky has been with me. I could talk to Boris for hours and hours, but we won't do that today. Um, Boris Kogorlitsky is somebody you should be reading. Go over to Russian Descent on Substack. Subscribe to that. Make sure that you are uh, reading it every single time it arrives in your email. Uh, Boris Kogorlitsky, again, he is the chief editor of the online journal Robcord. That's Russian language, Robcord, R-A-B-K-O-R dot R-U. If you have any Russian skills, I highly recommend you subscribe there and uh, follow, you know, translations and so forth. Uh, Boris Kogorlitsky, you could follow him also on uh, social media. Boris, thank you so much for chatting with us and helping us understand all of these things. Thank you, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always. And we will chat again next time.